Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, but perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 here from a halfway hut in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today is a uh, writer for Vulture in New York Magazine and uh, the biggest Brooklyn Nets fan on Twitter, Bill Gaviri. <laughs> wow, that's, that's, quite a, that's quite a claim there. Well, there's no question you're the biggest in my timeline. 
<laughs> Are we the biggest, the biggest uh, Brooklyn Nets fan on film Twitter? Probably. Yes, that's probably that seems true. Fair. That seems fair. <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, I'm an I'm an I'm a Knicks fan, but it doesn't mean we can't be friends. Yeah, at least at least for the next hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. Here, here's here's a question for you, Bilga. Is this huh. uh, a bone of contention between you and David Sims as well, who I'm assuming is also a Knicks fan, or is he a Nets? He is fan? a Knicks fan. Uh, Sims is a Knicks fan, but Sims is also. Um, <laughs> we talked about we talked about this. He actually also has gone to Nets games and stuff. Like, so he's okay. not, okay. you know, it, it's not that kind of. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I haven't had like a we, long talk with him. About it. I'm sure. I'm sure we could come to blows if we wanted to. Um, Sims yeah. may be maybe accommodating when it comes to the Nets sharing his city, but my sense is you want the Nets to just take over all five boroughs and the surrounding area. Or, or, or at least just at least just somehow destroy the Knicks and and, and go ahead. So my history of becoming this is completely, yeah, completely no, derailed yeah. the podcast yeah. already, especially in a, like a Jane Campion movie. Can't help and it. Here I can't we are help it. It's it's, um, it's too unusual when we when we have a, a film Twitter uh, person. So, so so my journey to the. To, to becoming like a diehard uh, Nets fan actually begins with me hating the Knicks. Um, <laughs> because, but I'm, me hating the Knicks though, that, that's like a, that, that was from the 90s because I was actually a, a, a Bulls fan because, oh, you know, I, I, sure. I started watching basketball because I wanted to see Michael Jordan. Um, and I, uh, I went to college in the tri state area. So, like, basically, all you had, and this was before, you know, and the, uh, this was before the internet, so before League Pass or any of that, any of that crap. Um, you basically had, you know, the occasional nationally televised game, uh, and then you had uh, Knicks games, and then you had like on a fuzzy, like distant channel reception, you got Nets games. Right? That's right. That's why I watched the Nets too. By the way, yeah. <laughs> like it was. I can't remember. I think it was like a Channel Fifty Four or something. I can't it remember. Was, I know. I know. I know what it yeah. was. It was Sports Channel New York, but it was, but it was uh, like bad reception. Yes, it was horrible. So you, yes. you had to watch it through just like grain. It was like yeah. watching a Carl Theodore Dreyer movie, and about as exciting, mind you, with the Nets back then. Um, but uh, but I hated the Knicks. And so for the longest time, the Nets were kind of, and when I moved to New York, I was like, well, you know, like I can, I can tolerate the Nets. I still want the Knicks to lose. But then when they actually moved to Brooklyn, I was like, all right, well, now I'm a fan. (laughs) You know, now I'm like a real fan. Um, I started going to games and stuff. And so as, as a Knicks fan, I too hate the Knicks. So I get along really well with Knicks fans. generally. The the Knicks are the most hateable franchise of all time. So, so, uh, I totally get I, so it. So I can only assume that Jane Campion's also a Knicks fan, but I really have no idea. But I, my, my, oh. I, to, to pivot to Jane Campion, I do want to ask <laughs> because um, I I noticed on Twitter, Bilga, that you talked you were talking about Jane Campion a little bit. I think it was Power of the Dog adjacent to some degree or another. Um, and uh, and past and and future guests Karen Hahn connected us, and I wanted to sort of just kind of from thirty thousand feet ask you. When did you start watching her movies? Is she sort of is she someone that you've been watching for a really long time, or or how did she come into your life? Uh, she is someone I've been watching for a very long time since I was a kid. Um, I let me. Uh, I'm trying to think of when I, I. I don't even remember the first Jane Campion film I saw. I mean, she was 
you know, she was one of these signature auteurs um, of my my childhood. I mean, that's when she was coming up. Now, I, I started really young, like being a, a cinephile and being like a really, you know, precocious and pretentious cinephile who, you know, like really wanted to see like the best of world cinema. And I had no sure. no time for like, I don't know, John Ford or Frank Capra movies or anything like that. Like I was just like <laughs> deep dive into like old Coyote cinema lists and whatever was showing right. at Cannes and stuff like that. Um, so I was, so I, so I had, I, I'm pretty sure I'd seen an angel at my table uh, before the piano came out. Mm-hmm. And then the piano came out while I was in college. And that was obviously just like a seismic event. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be in college uh, when the piano came out was like a big deal. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, that was a movie everyone talked about. Um, and uh, so, so she was kind of, you know, she was, always there as, as a filmmaker. And then I, I, I can't remember when I saw Sweetie, but it was not long after that. Um, and, and then, you know, I was really excited by, you know, the run up to Portrait of a Lady. Mm-hmm. And I loved the Portrait of a Lady. Um, and I was kind of surprised at the time that, that people didn't quite yeah. groove with it. They didn't um, like it. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's, um, it's weird. I mean, it's, it's, I think, I think some people just kind of held it at a distance. I'm very happy to see that that film has kind of had a, had a resurgence of interest. Um, I, I, you know, one of the things I find interesting about Portrait of a Lady over the years or have found interesting about it over the years is, you know, you talk to, I mean, I, I, I hate the gender essentialism. With, into which I'm going here, but but like you'll talk to men about the movie, and they'll be like, "I'm not sure. I, like, I, I just can't understand why she hooked up with John Malkovich, right?" right and that's right, kind right. of because because that's kind of the central like turn in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you talk to women, and they they totally get it, you yeah. know. And and but well, it's like, like the but dangerous the, liaisons thing too, right? Where yeah. there were people that were just like, he has a charisma and a sexuality to him that is compelling. Yeah. But in, I mean, but, but in, in Dangerous Liaisons, at the very least, he's he's a he's a seducer, like he's like he's right, a right, great right. seducer, right? Whereas he's not quite that. He's like yeah. he's like vaguely pathetic in Portrait of a Lady. <laughs> but but what I love, but but like that symbolizes that symbolizes, but that represents one of the things I love about her movies, which is that there is like a mystery in the heart of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, I, I've I've become more fascinated by this idea of films that don't quite resolve themselves they're not quite closed loops there's something missing i've i've actually i've been i've been beating this this term that that i that i came up with like 10 years ago or something called um called earworm cinema right like Uh this idea of a movie that has some typically essential element missing Mm -hmm. so because that's the way earworms work right like the songs that you that get stuck in your head apparently the, the reason they get stuck in your head is your brain can't quite remember it properly. And it's like, there's some element missing. And so your brain just goes into this loop, just playing it over and over again, trying to like figure out the song. Um, and I, I love I, the I, idea that movies do that, you know, like movies that like have some key element missing sure. and then you just become obsessed with them and you just keep Still watching gone. them because you're like, where is this? You know, are there some quintessential examples of that? Um, yeah, actually, a couple of films I, I, I've, I've, I've talked about in the context of earworm cinema. Um, well, The Shining, I think, is a great example of earworm cinema, where they don't really explain what the hell is going on. <laughs> You're just Certainly kind of not at a with loss. that picture, right? I mean, the book explains everything. The, yeah. the movie, like, just you know, they deleted the scene where they <laughs> explained what happened. You know, yeah. um, 
And uh, I actually recently did this uh, essay for Criterion on Citizen Kane in which I made the very, uh, to, my, to my mind, the rather bold claim that Citizen Kane might actually be an example of earworm cinema. Because there is something missing. There is a kind of through line to Kane that's missing. But there it's not so much that, um, it's not so much in Citizen Kane that it's missing. It's just that there are all these contradictory visions of the man, so you never get a full picture. Sure. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, there are a number of films like that where there's just some element that, you would think would be there and it's not and it just freaks you out uh sometimes maybe without you even quite realizing and then you just like watch the movie over and over again and, and you know it just never quite clicks i want to i, I want to kind of it. um highlight something that you were just talking about because i think it's worth um unpacking a little bit which is jane campion's depictions of masculinity what what it means to be a man, certainly within the universe of her films, which is fascinating to me. Um, I, w- when you look at the, uh, I mean, obviously, Holy Smoke, we'll get into that, where obviously sure. there's very much a deconstruction of masculinity within within that film. But, um, you know, I, I, I watched a handful of her movies again in a lead up to this, some of which I hadn't seen before. I had not seen Bright Star before, which I really loved. Um, but again, like a very interesting portrayal um you know ben wishaw's performance a beautiful performance but not sort of a a particularly i guess the men in her movies are strong but in ways that don't seem strong if that makes sense what we assume Mm -hmm. to be sort of this strength in masculinity um is just there's there's just so many layers to the way that she does it i mean power of the dog obviously is another example of sort of these two men um three men that exist in that film and how drastically dissimilar they all are. Um, I think it's fascinating. And I'm sort of curious as to whether or not that's one of the things that gravitated for you towards her movies. I think she's really drawn to, uh, to, to dreamers or to kind of, um, you know, I, I interviewed her actually uh, for the, um, the, the Telluride film festival uh, program guide and I still haven't seen the interview so I don't know what what part of it went. like I just I, I did this long interview with her over the phone and they just took it from there right. and edited it down and you know so I never actually saw the final version so I don't know if this part is in there but but she called she called them lovers in, in my in, in my interview like this idea she was we were talking specifically about power of the dog yeah. um, but but the, these like kind of creative souls who are often uh you know, often, often crushed by the world around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it goes for women and men in her films. But those, yeah. like, those are the types of people that she's interested in. But it's interesting, like, for women, it manifests itself in different ways than it does for men in her films. Um, Absolutely. And, and that's, and, and like, when you look at it in that way, that makes some of the things that people find baffling about some of these films, particularly Holy Smoke, interesting because, because that, I mean, not, not interesting, but it makes it more compelling and perhaps understandable because, you know, like Keitel's character turns out to be one of those people. Like mm-hmm. these two people find each other because they have this weird connection. Um, and, but if you, if you looked at it like on the page, you'd ask yourself, well, how the hell, how the hell do these two get together? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's kind yeah. of, I, I, I mean, so, so to, to, I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but, yeah, but no, that's kind of the thing that I think she sort of is drawn towards. Um, and so, which then becomes a crisis of masculinity, of course. I mean, you, you, Power of the Dog is all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she's also fascinated by characters who are in some way, um, incapable of being anybody but themselves. 
sure. um, which I think is one of the fascinating things about Power of the Dog because you have Benedict Cumberbatch's character who is, I mean, I, this, I guess it's in theaters. A lot of people know. Yeah. I, I mean, so so we're, we I can, haven't we seen it, stuff. but you can go right ahead. All right. <laughs> Doesn't bother me at all. A, I think okay. it, goes, it goes up on Netflix this weekend, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, December 1st, I believe. Um, oh, so uh, you have, uh, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's character who is – you know, who's obviously dealing with all sorts of repressed, you know, (laughs) gender roles. Yeah. Things. Um, and has kind of glommed onto this, this kind of cowboy myth, cowboy ethos, which of course was passed down to him from another guy who was dealing with the same (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Bronco Henry. Was it Bronco? Um, so, uh, you know, so there's like this whole tradition of, you know, repressed homosexuality that he's coming from. But then you have Cody Smith McPhee's character who is incapable of being anything but himself. Like is just, and it's, it, you can tell it drives Cumberbatch crazy, <laughs> you know, because, because at first you think he hates him for who he is compared to who Cumberbatch is. And there's obviously some of that. But then slowly you realize he hates him for the fact that he doesn't change. He hates him for the fact, and it's almost like he's trying to, you know, when he kind of brings him under his wing, he's trying to sort of lead him down this path of becoming more of, uh, you know, a quote unquote man. Um, and Cody Smith McPhee just, just, he's, it's just not his, like, he's not going to do it. Um, or he's going to do it in his own way. Yeah. You can see it in the in the Sam Neill Harvey Keitel dynamic as well in the piano, where where you're seeing sort of Harvey Keitel is being himself, right? Like there yeah. is there is no one, and and I would also Ada Holly Hunter's character also very similarly, you know, yeah. dedicated to being the person that they want to be. Sam Neill is dealing with repression, dealing with sort of social norms and the things that he's supposed to be doing versus what he yeah. wants to be doing, and and I. I I think Holy Smoke is a perfect example of this as well, right? I mean, it's all about deprogramming and this idea of like the person that you're supposed to be or what your family wants you to be. Um, But it's also like Holy Smoke is a very interesting movie, a movie that I really kind of didn't know much about. I don't know if you knew anything about it, Kenny, going into it either. No, Um, hardly anything. Yeah, so to me, all I first of all in my brain, which is an interesting way to go into this movie. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. You know, because this movie is one thing for the first thirty minutes, and then becomes something very different. It's, it's, I, and I love that about it. I, I, I also just want to just for a quick second talk about the way Jane Campion's movies have been. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Embraced or lack thereof? Right, like this movie was not embraced at all. Holy Smoke, you know, mm-hmm. 46% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 47 from audiences. A movie that I think is was was grossly sort of discarded. Um, I would say, you know, Bright Star didn't really make much of an impact, even though it's a, a really beautiful movie. Um, I, I also feel like Portrait of a Lady at the time didn't really get its its moment. Do you think that there's something with the way, the type of movie she makes? Do you think it's the way they're made? What is it do you think that makes it so that her films take time for people to come around to them? Well, I think I think it's very simple. I, first of all, she's an incredibly idiosyncratic director. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, I mean, it's not, and and that's not. I mean, it's a, idiosyncratic can be kind of a bullshit word sometimes. You know, <laughs> sure, um, sure. but but like she's she's a very she's a very distinctive filmmaker, um, and 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 to the culture's credit. 
the piano is one of the strangest films she's ever made. Yeah. And one of the strangest films, you know, to ever be like nominated for a best picture and become like a, a win season. Like three big awards. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's, it's so fun because that's the year that like, I mean, that was the year Schindler's List, right? Yeah. And so it was never going to win the big award, but enough people saw it as a contender that there was even like a, a bit of a, like, um, like op oppo campaign against her no this was actually this really? was actually really so th- this was really this was a really dark moment in film criticism when michael medved this was i mean michael medved not exactly um a tribune of uh the film critical establishment but he actually he was a big schindler's list fan um and i guess he didn't care for the piano very much but you know, it's like uh, at the time of the piano, Jane Campion actually—I um, don't know how much you know about her, her life. She actually um, uh, she gave birth to a, a, a baby that died after two, twelve oh. days. Um, and I, I don't know if it was a case where she she knew it was going to happen, but you know, it was—I mean, incredibly tragic thing. And at one point, Michael Medved actually accused her of kind of using that to gain sympathy votes in the Oscar race, which. She certainly did not do. Um, I, I, you know, that's but, crazy. Which, m- meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, yeah. you know, anybody that talked about Schindler, anybody that said anything remotely right. negative about Schindler's list got piled on um, at the time. So, but you know, I mean, these were the dark days of you know Harvey Weinstein Oscar campaigns and things like that. So, um, but uh, so anyway, but the idea that the piano was yeah. like such an Im- acclaimed film that it was seen as a runner-up only to Schindler's List at the Oscars is yeah. incredible. Uh, when you see the movie, it's incredible. Um, so, but, but it's weird because people embrace that. People embrace her. And this thing that happens with these types of films is that they then get really psyched for the next one. Right. But they have this idea that the next one is somehow going to be more and and to be you know to be fair, she did adapt the Henry James novel, so you know that I'm sure fed into it. But people sure. really thought that that was going to be like, yeah. I mean, I, I love Merchant Ivory, but back then Merchant Ivory had become kind of a a, a, a code word for you know boring, staid, you know, cinema <laughs> of tradition, which Merchant Ivory totally isn't. Like Merchant Ivory, like we can have a whole other conversation about them. Um, but uh, but I think people thought that kind of that's what it was going to be just like a, a kick-ass period picture or something and it wasn't it was totally it was a totally strange i mean it's still in some ways her most traditional movie but still totally crazy film um i, I do think that each of these films has had a different re- reception mm-hmm. um so i don't think it's been kind of a consistent uh, also there's enough time between her films that it's not like people are like oh jane campion is this type of director and there she goes again it's not, i don't For think sure. it's like that i i think it's just that she makes these really idiosyncratic films and every time it comes out this idea um this idea you know this idea that uh, i wrote something about this not long ago but um you know with stillman on on another film podcast uh mm-hmm. the cows in the field podcast it had this great idea that, that this great term that he said you know uh, the not normalness of films, like when they first come out, really sort of kind of turns people off. And then it's only uh, like a few years later that they're suddenly able to kind of really actually rewatch these movies and people are able to kind of understand that some movies are, are, are strange and that's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. But when you were, when they were coming out in the heat of the Oscar race or 
they're coming out and you're kind of seeing them in the context of the careers of the people involved. I mean, this is Kate Winslet two years after Titanic, right? Yeah. Um, so, so there's all sorts of other stuff. I mean, it's just like Kate and she's naked, you know, and it's Harvey Keitel yeah. and, you know, he was in the piano. And it's like, there's, there's, there's all this stuff get, becomes part of the discourse. Um, and, uh, and it's, well, this it's is also a, a pretty, this is a, this is a weird movie. And I say that in, is, a, in a yeah. positive way, but it is a strange film. Oh, yeah. I mean, to, to Kenny's point, this movie starts. I was like, okay, I think I think I'm on this movie's wavelength. I think I sort of understand what it's doing. And then she really pulls the rug out from underneath you so much so that it is it's quite discombobulating. And I and I did find myself going like genuinely have no idea where this movie's going now, which is obviously exhilarating and exciting. But I imagine for some people it's not. For some people, it's I have preconceived notions coming into this film. And if it's not meeting them, then I'm not interested. I well, I, I also want to kind of just take half a step back to what Bill sure. was saying, because I think I think that there's, you know, obviously a societal issue and a question here with how these movies are received. And particularly when you have a filmmaker like Jen Campion, who didn't have much of a footprint in America before the piano and the piano comes out and is um, it's allowed to kind of grow organically and grow smallly, uh, grow small and be a word of mouth hit. Um, and I think exceed most people's expectations when they actually sat down in the theater. She has this giant target on her back after that. Now, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, tempted to say something glib which is like well her reward is that she got to have a career because so many female filmmakers who make an incredible film um that don't reach the heights of this film don't even get to have a career you know Bill, you know we've done 200 of these and we've probably seen at least a dozen movies by female filmmakers that we love and then the follow-up question is now why haven't they made more so kimberly pierce being maybe one of the biggest ones oh yeah boys don't cry like yeah kimberly pierce uh is is you know great example but um there's so many of them yeah and uh so yeah so so there is that aspect of it now i think Frankly, the issue with Holy Smoke is not so much that people saw it and didn't like it. It's that the critics had their knives out because it was 1999 and we had our knives out for people like her. And a lot of people didn't see it. Um, and I, I, I do really I think that's that's more or less the, the story of that movie until this podcast when we reclaim it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree with you, Kenny, because I, I remember when this film came out, you know, Bilga, you talked about how it was two years after Titanic, right? Everyone, I mean, everyone was like, what, what is Leo and Kate going to do after Titanic? What are their follow-up movies? And her follow-up for a few years post-Titanic is fascinating, but also kind of littered with a bunch of movies that sort of exist and kind of don't exist your your quills and your life of david gales and well, movies that are kinky just sort of like year two which we haven't done yet and hideous kinky and this one have like weird resonances similarities yeah. to the point where sometimes i'll uh, you know before, before my recent research i was like which one was hideous kinky and which one was only <laughs> like, right <laughs> but it's it's so it is i totally agree with you kenny this movie just sort of didn't make much of a footprint I mean, I, I want to give just a really quick uh, context for our listeners um, in terms of a synopsis, which is while on a journey of discovery in exotic India, beautiful young Ruth, played by Kate Winslet, falls into the influence of a charismatic religious guru. 
Her desperate parents then hire PJ Waters, played by Harvey Keitel, a macho culty programmer who confronts Ruth in a remote desert hideaway. But PJ quickly learns that he's met his match in the sexy, intelligent, and iron-willed Ruth. It opened on December 3rd, 1999 against Toy Story 2, The World Is Not Enough, End of Days, Sleepy Hollow, and The Bone Collector. So, like, this is, you know what I mean? Like, look at that and tell me that this film's ever going to have a chance to find an audience. And that was, and that was, I believe, like a week-long qualifying run, too. Like, it, was, it wasn't like a what? Because it, it, it wound up, I think, being like a January release. Um, you know, I mean, yes. th- and this, was, this yeah. was one of these, you know, they had to qualify it. Uh, show it to yes, critics yes. and stuff. And I think some critics, yes. you know, I think some critics, uh, I mean, I heard some, I, I you know, I, I don't re- remember this. So I just, I, you know, I wasn't a member of any critics organization at the time, but I think Kate Winslet actually did well in like critics awards. Like I think she, she did win a couple of critic circles for, for sure. Yeah. It wasn't um, like the movie didn't have any impact. I mean, I think yeah. that it goes it, without saying to some degree that anything Jane Campion does after the piano is going to get people talking absolutely, in some way or not. Absolutely. And these and, and critics were aware of her work. Like people knew who she was. In in those circles, people who knew, knew who she was before the piano. Mm-hmm. Um the but but I will say, I mean, look, Holy Smoke is not a perfect movie by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. And, and sure. one of the things that but like, you know, watching it again, you know, I'm I'm struck by how little sense it makes, like from scene to scene to scene. And there's so many like little like like I mean you know, he's, he's like this great cult deprogrammer, programmer, but like at the first sign of any kind of resistance for her, he just like completely evaporates. <laughs> right. And which like, which then you say, okay, well, oh yeah, maybe it's just the idea is that this is the first time a woman has, has even like, uh, you know, uh, resisted him. Mm-hmm. And, but then you're like, well, that's not, that, that, that seems like a terrible thing to say about women for Jane Campion. Yeah. I'm not sure that that was her point. So maybe he's just kind of a, a you know, he's never, you know, had that kind of resistance just as a person. But then his girlfriend shows up and it's Pam Greer. Yeah. And you're just like, all right, well, that doesn't entirely make sense. Yeah, that was um, But that's, at the same time, that's kind of what makes the film great. That's why you yeah. never know where it's going because yeah. it actually doesn't, like, no scene actually makes sense. Like, the next scene never makes sense from what you've just seen. And that makes it kind of delightful. Like, every when scene Pam is Greer delightful. When showed up, I was just yeah. like, Right. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, sure. <laughs> Why not? You know? Uh, I mean, at the, by that point, you've already seen so much, but like, that's, that's one of the things I love about the movie. It's like, if there was, like, if she had kind of gone through and made the script make more sense and kind of, you know, dotted her I's and crossed her T's in terms of like character development and everything, it wouldn't be nearly as entertaining, but it probably would have been a little more of a, you know, like a more of a, a consistent experience watching it maybe well, you know you know i think that one of the things that was thrown at this film at least in the research that i'd done by critics right which is and and to be perfectly honest uh kate and her sister uh anna i believe mm-hmm. yes yeah. who wrote it together both talked about Jane. how yeah. they they wanted these characters to to be very articulate and to and to really and for these to be sort of a, a battle of wills a battle of wits uh you know uh, in terms of you know uh a battle of sexes, if you will. And I think a lot of people felt like it's a lot of scenes between the two of them kind of mind fucking each other, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Like, I don't know what the problem is there, but I can, I, but I understand that some people might find that, I don't know, less like when, when there's just scenes of the two of them and she's just literally breaking him down and his masculinity down. I'm just like, this is good shit. Like it made me yeah. think of, 
the scene in Eyes Wide Shut when Nicole Kidman gives that big speech that essentially like blows his mind and sends him on this whole journey. Like, I don't know. I think that's great. But what did you guys think? Well, uh, well, well, Eyes Wide Shut, another film that that you know that sure. didn't exactly uh, bit, bit of a grower, crazy. yeah, a bit of a grower, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I uh, I think you know. Look, it, it, maybe it's trite, but. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious what's going on here. The cult is masculinity. The cult is American yeah. masculinity, actually. Yeah. There's a reason the first shot you see of him is cowboy boots with fucking Neil Diamond playing. <laughs> um, and I think that's spe- that's specifically what Jane Campion It's a great entrance, is. though. It's fucking awesome. And <laughs> in a worse movie about the really great cowboy deprogrammer, yeah. you know, you would have just gone with it. And you wouldn't have thought that hard. And you know, I think that what, what happened was I was like, oh great, it's the it's the Neil Diamond <laughs> Colty programmer movie. This will be a hoot. And then had my entire, you know, identity challenged. And uh that was difficult for me, but I think that's um I, I think that's what, what what was happening over the course of this movie. My issue yeah. is more with the tactics. My issue is more with the I don't, yeah, I think Bill is saying this. I, I don't really exactly understand what happened. I know where we started. I know where we ended. <laughs> I know what I saw, but I don't exactly understand why the characters acted the way they acted throughout the course of the film. Um, but that's specifically Harvey, a more so him, Whoa, I would say. Really? Than, uh, okay. Ruth I mean, as well? Well, specifically Harvey, but I don't know what she said or did. Mm hmm. To get him to do anything that I agree sure. uh, in particular, and, and I, in the absence of something that I can really kind of grasp onto, it does kind of slip, you know, it's kind of slippery slope its way into some younger women, older men tropes. That uh, he does fall in love with her very quickly. It feels like, and she's very, she very much thinks the reason is because she's a young, attractive woman. At some point, she says something effective. Do you love me or do you love my breasts? Yeah. Right. So, uh, I does he say her breasts? He said, "In this moment, it's your breasts." Yeah. <laughs> He's honest. Uh, that 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 is progress, actually, for a for, for a sure. modern man. But so yeah. that's that. I I actually really kind of love the movie as a finished yeah. product, as a you know from a thirty thousand foot view. But in the moment. I was very confused, and I and I don't necessarily, and it didn't necessarily have that earworm quality to me. Sure. Where I'm trying to figure it out, um, but yeah, I don't disagree. I think, yeah, it's very I, arresting I, what happens when we wind up. So I think it's you know, well, I think I texted you when I was about halfway through it, Kenny, and I was like, this movie's really weird, but it's very compelling. compelling. Yeah, like you, you, you can't like you're not bored at any point, despite the fact that to your point, and I agree with you, Kenny, on a on a plotting or or a character level i did find myself wondering why these turns were happening but i will also say and this this is going to seem like a cheat and i certainly don't mean it to but like these are two pretty unstable people um so there is maybe more so ruth than pj depending on how you look at it but i did sort of get the impression that these are really fragile people that have essentially locked themselves in a hut in the outback um weird shit's going to go on that I'm not entirely convinced needs to be all that, you know, but motivated. But yes, Bill. I was going to say at the same time though, they're, they, they've got it more together than anyone else around them. I mean, that the, the thing that, um, I mean, the thing that I'm always struck by is because you see, you know, the film opens in, 
I remember correctly, it opens in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, it cuts back to Australia. Mm-hmm. And then you see her family and you're like, well, that's, this is why she, this is why this woman is searching for something better in her life. You know, like these people are ridiculous. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, she, you know, Campion plays it up for comedy and, and she continues to play it up for comedy, but then every once in a while, someone will do something awful, right? I mean, her, her dad is this hilarious. And I think that's like a very Australian character. Like the, the guy just like hanging out in his speedo and the tan, yeah. and, you know, and the bad toupee and, you know, just oh. playing golf all day long. Um, and, uh, and he's like, you know, he's, he's a comic character, but you know, he's, he's also, I mean, he's also just a complete shithead, you know, total you, shit. You realize. All I could think though um, was, wow, this guy's figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> this, guy's, um, I, this guy's got it made how is he pulling this off and and, 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 and then you know obviously you have like uh the, the sister-in-law and all these other uh, i mean the brother the, the gay brother and and, and his mm-hmm. uh, not husband uh but at that point it wouldn't have been a husband but um Lover, I guess. you know and, and his partner are mm-hmm. you know they, they seem kind of cool but they're also very much they bought in on this whole family you know deprogramming thing um and and I love how she keeps cutting back to them, mm-hmm. even in moments where we don't really need to know what they're doing. And then she'll just cut to like some delightful little like moment of craziness and then just go back to everything, which creates this atmosphere of mm-hmm. a, a world in which anything can happen and a world in which you're never quite sure tonally where you are. Am I watching something that's hilarious or am I watching something that's tragic or, you know, like, yeah, oh, like I mean, people get punched in the face and stuff and there's a rape attempt. I mean, there are all sorts of terrible yeah. things happening in this movie. But she's not afraid to kind of still sort of, you know, keep cutting back to comic moments. Mm-hmm. She doesn't necessarily play that stuff for comedy, but she's unafraid to kind of do something dark and then follow it up with something just ridiculous. Um, and I think well, there, that's, you know. Yeah, there's an interesting, there's an interesting point uh, that, you know, to be made about that particular idea, which is um, uh, I, I used to, I, when I first moved out to LA, I worked on the show Intervention. And uh, interventions in general are kind of fascinating mm-hmm. because uh, it doesn't really matter who um, who is in your family or who are your friends. At that moment, they have complete control over you, yeah. right? The, and, and a lot of the times these people are fucking buffoons. And a lot of the time people are just there because they're being asked to be there and they don't even really understand the extent of the issue. And a lot of the times I think they're just there to exert their superiority over you. Right. You're the one with the problem. I'm the one telling you to get help or you can get out of my life. There's this moment in the movie where these dopes circle her in a, you know, Australian outback desert wasteland Mad Max, you know, in 20 years situation and just keep kind of like circling around her and moving with her, trying not to touch her, looking like the biggest bunch of fools of all time and not under like, like she goes to hug. I think it's her brother. Right. She goes to hug one of them and basically like begs him to like, you know, be normal for a second and not put her into this situation. Cause like, I think part of what we're, what we're, we recognize over the course of the movie is she wasn't really in a cult. So, um, so then that's what I'm saying. Like these idiots have this power over her based on a hunch that her mom has. Yep. Um, and, and I think that that's a really, I think it's important to show just how, uh, just how unreliable these people are. I think The Sopranos, if you remember, did it really well with Christopher's intervention too, where you have, of all people, Paulie Walnuts spitting in his face and saying, you better stop with you, you know, you're smacking and you, you, it's, it's ludicrous. 
But like, you know, again, I saw a lot of interventions work, so it goes both ways. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something really interesting to Ruth's character in, in the sense of what, first of all, what you're talking about, Kenny, and the, the, the misinterpretation of youth, the misinterpretation of her um, naivete, if that's the right word. I think that there's a quote here um, that Jane Campion said, uh, Ruth is beautiful and intelligent. She's also young. That was a real point of entry for the character. I believe youth tends to make people, it made me anyway, very dogmatic and very brave. Young people keep us honest. They're also so intolerant of anything hypocritical. You hear from your kids all the time. The one thing they can't tolerate is hypocrisy, which also gives them problems with the contradictory or paradoxical nature of life. Anything that has a kind of overlapping or complex quality to it. I, I think there's something really interesting to that. She just describe that, like, Twitter. It, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I love the fact that they saw Ruth as this brave person, right? That there was this fortitude to her um, and that everyone else thinks she's crazy for that. And and I think that that's, I mean, Kenny, you have kids. I'm assuming, Bilga, you have kids. Like, I think that you must see that sort of honesty and that frustration with hypocrisy. You and- hate hypocrisy. That's, <laughs> every day we get called, you know, called to task Hypocrite. for the, yeah, we, we get court-martialed for our, for all the hypocrisy. <laughs> In our in our marriage and family sure. and and house, but yeah. But do you think that like that that's just a a, a I mean a, a a rite of passage that like you become jaded and you're just like fucking at a certain point? I don't know. Well, I think she, I mean, because she's somebody who has always made movies about the messiness of life. Yeah. Um, I think that that's something that she, like, in order to. In order to be able to make movies about the messiness of life, you have to recognize the messiness of life. So I'm sure that Jane Campion as a person, I mean, I don't know her or anything like that, but I'm sure she's somebody who has struggled with all of these things at various points in her life. Like the idea of kind of. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. you know, confidence and, and righteousness and and, and and being dogmatic about certain things while recognizing that the world is not that way. Um, and also, I mean, look, a, a filmmaker, a director has to, you know, like they are the ultimate villain, right? I mean, to, to get anything done, a, a, a director has to kind of coax and cajole and in certain ways, you know, be hypocritical or, or pull things out of people that, 
I, I mean, you know, uh, again, I don't know much about her as, a, as an actual like, on-set director, but, sure, sure. you know, like a, a filmmaker is, is the biggest hypocrite in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like they fix their camera on you and they talk to you to try and get some kind of emotion out of you. And as soon as that's done, they're like, all right, <laughs> move it on, <laughs> yeah. next person, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And for each and for each actor, I'm sure they have different ways of dealing with them. Um and, you know, I mean, film sets are just like the worst hierarchies ever. Um, so, you know, I'm sure she's somebody who has had to deal with all of this stuff. Um, and as a parent, too. I mean, you know, um, so uh, it's a, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, 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 the kind of the stridency of youth, but also the openness of youth. Yeah. Right. And, and, and what, what's interesting about, Kaitel's character is he kind of reconnects with that. I mean, he's somebody yeah. who's like, you know, like he's, his hair is clearly painted. I mean, the idea is he is middle-aged and probably sort of trying to hang on to whatever kind of youth he has in a, in a superficial way. Um, but in, in some ways he, you know, I mean, this sounds like such a cliche, especially with like, you know, relationships between younger women and older men um, where, you know, I'm sure she makes him feel young again. Um, but but in in some way that actually liberates him to actually have like a normal quote unquote normal life with with his uh you know with his girlfriend well that makes me think of, yeah. of of two things the first yeah. is um one of the best scenes in the film is when i think she tries to teach him how to kiss again mm-hmm. which comes back to what you were saying about youth this idea that like he's so set in his ways as to what he thinks a sexual relationship is supposed to be, or, or, or at the very least, what dynamics between men and women are supposed to be. Um, and she literally has to train him to connect with her, yeah. uh, something that I'm assuming the women in his life have not done previous. Um, but then I would also say, in terms of, I know we're jumping all over the place in terms of the plot, but at the end of this movie, you get the distinct impression that he would drop everything again just to be with oh, yeah. so him. Like, he basically says it in that letter. Yeah, He's just like, where do you want me? When? Like, Just tell me when and where and I'll be <laughs> So like, I don't know that he's necessarily really gotten over her. That's true. <laughs> but I don't know what you're saying. I, I think that there's something, you know, Kenny, you talked about uh, PJ's introduction, uh, which is, you know, cowboy boots, this leather jacket, uh, you know, this. And, and I love that that's how we meet him. And at the end of the movie, he's wearing a dress and lipstick. And he's basically just a broken, like, husk of a, of a man. Yeah. And he's, uh, assume, and he's assuming the, uh, the subordinate position correct. in oh, their yeah. cuddle. And I think that there's a lot to, I, I know that there's a lot to that. You know, he is the one who needs to be taken care of at that point. He is the one who needs to be, do needs to be rescued. He's the one who's been completely broken down and deprogrammed. I mean, this is, you it's know. Amazing. And dominated. I mean, he, 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 he becomes a, a, a sub, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's that great scene at the bar uh, where, um, what was it, what she says, she, she says she, she wants to have a smoke and he says, no, he shouldn't have a smoke. And he's, and she's like, I, you know, no, I, 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 th- I think I'd like to have one. And, and it's such a great sort of, she's just, I mean, you know, she's got him eating out of the palm of her hand at this point. Well, it's, it's amazing that like, I, I would argue, I'm not convinced he ever really had any sense of control over her. 
Like there's, there's something, their first scenes together, you get the impression that like he's giving rules and he's putting sort of guardrails on what she can and can't do. But I mean, she's spelling out help in stones. I mean, she's basically figuring out ways to kind of communicate outside of this little weird hut that he's created. Um, And, and I, and I would argue that, you know, I think he wants to sleep with her from the second that he meets her. Like, I I don't know that, that I don't know how he's deprogrammed in the past and whether or not this is a a new thing for him or not. But that scene the next morning after they've had sex in the kitchen and he's just, you can tell that he like something's happened to him and she's sort of broken through and she's so dismissive of him and how much it breaks his heart that she doesn't feel the way he feels almost immediately. I mean, it's, Harvey's really good in this movie. <laughs> he's great. I mean, it's, it's in some ways he's probably the only person who could have played this part and made it compelling in that way. Because I mean, look, the guy's a shitty deprogrammer. He's supposedly the best cult deprogrammer in the world that they like spent all this money off on. Mm-hmm. And he sucks. Like he's well, just I, not good yeah. at it at all. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, Give him a little. I'm gonna give him a little leeway okay. in that they say he's the best, but this fucking family. Couldn't yeah, find this family couldn't That's true. That's you know, these true. Sh- yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, no, it is true. Like they could have found him anywhere. Um, but it is interesting though that I mean, he's he's presented as kind of the guy who's you know like who, who knows what he's doing. He presents himself think, that way for sure. Yeah, but I do think that there is like she recognizes in him something like that scene because that scene you talked about where they circle her. Mm-hmm. right out outside and then she, that basically leads to her kind of walking to him um and i can't help but think that at that moment and i don't think the the, the, the cutting does this but 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 like just thinking about it, i can't help but think in that moment that at that point she recognizes in him this is my only way out of this is through that guy um so I don't think because because it also never quite made sense to me that she would just be like, all right, fine, let's let's do, let's do this, you know, instead of just like breaking out into a run or something, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just it it just seemed like a very odd moment. But then I realized, oh, I think she realizes that like he's going to be able to get her out of the situation. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's there's a. I mean, the, the best way I can describe it is there's a swagger to him at the beginning and a confidence to him at the beginning that certainly feels like, I think Kenny and I both were like, yeah, this guy will get it done. I mean, it's a deprogramming movie and it feels like this he's is, the wolf. And that's, that, I think, you know, you forget who, what, what was his name in, in Reservoir Dogs? I forgot. Mr. Uh, one of the Colors. M- Mr. One of the Colors. Sure. Mr. And, one of the Colors. Uh, you forget that he played like kind of the opposite of that in, in that movie, you know, mm-hmm. but, but he's the wolf. Like that's who he, that's yeah. once he's the wolf, he's forever the wolf. And I think any idea that this guy wouldn't go into a situation and yeah. solve it within, you know, three moves was kind of a, a shock to begin with. That's part of why I think he was such a great casting choice. And he was the wolf. I mean, he was the wolf after the piano, right? Because piano yes, is ninety three and and Pulp Fiction is ninety four. So, yeah. you know, it's like it's it's weird because he's kind of, you know, he embodies all his parts. That's one of the things I like about Pytel, even though he's he's an incredibly versatile actor. Um, okay. You know, the, when he's used the right way, he is in some ways all, used almost like a movie star in that he kind of embodies everybody he's already played. Because by this point, I mean, this is the nineties. This is the era of Tarantino movies he's done. This is the era of the piano. This is the era of Bad Lieutenant. 
when he has like a bad lieutenant moment when when the sister uh, when the sister in law goes down on him, <laughs> which is like I mean he's he's much more gentle than he is in bad lieutenant, but it's kind of <laughs> yeah, like, yes, but 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 that's such a kind of I was like all right that's I remember that Harvey Keitel you know like um so he kind of. You know, he's like Michael Douglas. You know how Michael Douglas with each movie is yeah. playing just like mm-hmm. a, a collection of all the previous Michael Douglas roles. That's kind of what Keitel is doing here. That's 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 yeah. We 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 bemoan a lot of things that we've lost on this podcast, but losing the the the, the hyper specific urban male character actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, is one of our great losses. Like yeah. I, you, you know, I mean, not to, not to, to, you know, go on too much of a tangent, but like, I keep trying to write this role for a modern Joe Pesci, and it keeps coming back that that guy doesn't exist. Like, you, where are you gonna? What, what, no one is yeah. there. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Oh, Kenny's is gonna it, go to do with this guy. I'll just, I'll just say that Harvey Keitel has had. And continues to have a fascinating career. I love that he's now a Wes Anderson player, which I think mm-hmm. is amazing. Like he's, you know, he he's just he's he has now. range. Sorry, Kenny. He's eighty. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Looks great. Shirtless in the Grand, Grand Budapest Hotel. He still looks like he can I kick tell. people's ass. But yeah, I mean, he's he's just. I don't know that we ever fully embraced it felt like he was i don't want to say he's a punchline because that's not fair. But there was a lot of sort of that in the nineties, bad lieutenant. Harvey Keitel seemingly showing us his well, genitals a fair amount. There was like a, there was just stuff going on. The other I thing think. about these guys that I'm talking about, Keitel, yes, yes, yes. Pesci, Walken, mm-hmm. yeah. um, yeah. they always kind of verged on self parody. Correct, right? Yeah. And oh, they yeah. always and and they were always kind of these. You know, they they were people who got lampooned a lot, people who got impersonated a lot, and that was part of the charm because they were certainly in on the joke. Um, it's another thing I just don't think people are down to do anymore. I think ever since Wahlberg got made fun of on uh, SNL, you know, go, you know, say hello to your mother. Everyone's so afraid of showing uh, of sh- showing anything outside of the movie for smoothed up persona. You yeah. know, you, you know, you know who I'm thinking of though is that that kind of connects to this Please. is a John Bernthal. Oh, he's awesome. Right. John Bernthal is is I kind of John continuing Bernthal. that tradition. He, is. he was so he, is. he was so this in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, there's actually another guy, a young, uh, another actor who actually um, who's a friend of mine, who's 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 who I did some movies with years ago. Um, who is now actually like getting a profile? It's taking him a while, but Louis Conselmi, um, who's in uh, he's on Billions. Um, okay, he's he's in The Irishman. He's actually now in in Killers of the Flower Moon uh, too. Oh, cool. okay. he's in The Irishman. He's the guy. Um, he's the assassin uh, in the car with the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a very distinctive face. Um, yes. he's a great actor. He's a great theater actor too. But he kind of has that like. Mm-hmm. you know urban character actor quality which is funny because when you know when i knew him he was i mean he's such a striking looking person but when he was young you're like oh this guy's gonna go out for like leading man roles and now he's gotten a little older mm-hmm. um i mean he's younger than me but um but now you're like oh that's that's the part he should be doing like these kind of tough guy character actor sure, yeah, parts, yeah, yeah. you know well and i would i i wonder this also taps into to something as well that i i feel like Nope. That it feels like Hollywood doesn't like people with faces anymore, <laughs> like mm. with interesting looks, people that 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 feel so specifically them. Um, it, it's and it's so disappointing. You know what I mean? We talk all the time about all the Men Chris's, and women. right? And it's just yeah. it's it's a it's a real bummer that 
um, there's just a lack of specificity now, um, which I think is unfortunate. Well, I mean, I think because uh, I think part of it is that kind of face. I mean, those kinds of faces. I think I think you really need a director of of vision to 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 pull that off. Um, and that's not the that's not where sort of the modern A list directors' strengths lie generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there there are obviously filmmakers who can do this. Um, I mean, Scorsese still casts great faces. Sure. Um, Campion well, certainly casts great faces. Well, uh, Terrence Malick was always a great face caster, you know? Um, but, but, uh, <laughs> that sounds gross. <laughs> great face caster. <laughs> but um, I think also- this is, this is a, this is a great conversation <laughs> because you know, who, you know who's got the face, but they decided to make him a babe. It's mm. fucking Adam Driver. Well, I was just, that, I was driver, just, that guy yeah. explodes with this but, face and all uh, the things we can do with him. And now he's just like the hunk. Come well, on! I, I think he's a. Home. I don't know that it. I don't know that it needs to be mutually exclusive. I guess it doesn't. Like, it doesn't. I think doesn't. that Harry Whitmer just had an article about Gucci and the noses in Gucci, yeah. and how there's just a lot of noses. And and I do think that that Ridley's one of those people who still kind of casts yeah. faces from it, time to time. I, I want to make it clear: it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. I just don't think they're they're casting Adam Driver. In 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 roles that wouldn't you know the next guy in line wouldn't be a Brad Pitt. It's had nothing to right. do with the way he he looks that. anymore, yeah. which is kind of disappointing. Like I I mean you know of course throughout the history of film you have all these people with bizarre interesting looks who've been leading sure. men, uh, and that's fun in its own way. Um, but but it's it's really the it's it's a specificity of there's. The specificity of it, it it is relevant what a person looks like, mm-hmm. right? I, there's this idea that you know it doesn't matter, but yep. it does matter. It is it's, relevant, and you can use the, that in your storytelling. It's the most important thing. I think part of what what happens is when we think about when we when we talk about what people look like, people uh, th- there's this assumption that that means that they have to look great. Right. Um, and I would get, venture. I mean, look, I. You guys would know better than I would what it's like out in Hollywood, but but I think there is this obsession with, you know, just like, you know, smooth faces, perfect safety. bodies, all that the stuff, safety. you know, and it, and it is kind of a probably that, and plus the fact that, um, you know, I mean, I think I, I from what I understand of how a lot of directors operate nowadays, you know, you, you in like there's never a part of the process where you're getting, where you're trying to get the movie made, where you get to just like show faces or anything like that, because so much of it is like pre-visualization of action scenes. If you're that kind of filmmaker, but then a lot of it is just like being in the room and, you know, pitching the whole thing. Like at what point in the pitch meeting and you say, and this dude has the most amazing face you've ever seen. Like, that's just not a thing that's going to happen. And so you you kind of, Oh, go ahead. So, you know, who has great faces, every single person on succession. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah, watch Succession, but I'm sure they do. They um, got the faces. Yeah. I, I will do. say though, yeah. sorry, um, you don't watch it, Billy. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm bad with TV. I, there are only a couple okay. of things I, I can find time to watch. And, no, and, there's, and there's, there's so much to watch. There's so much to watch. Between I do, watching I, bad basketball and my <laughs> curb your enthusiasm. I mean, basketball my, my dad is a time the book. Oh yeah, I also watch. Yeah, I've also I'm also watching like Turkish soccer, which is you know. Sure. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> but I, I I I agree with what you're saying, uh, Kenny. That that everyone has great faces on on Succession. I also think that, and and you mentioned this, Bill, but like, Power of the Dog is another one where it's like everyone's got really great faces in yeah. that movie. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Cumberbatch really is, is the one looks. I was thinking of because yeah. Cumberbatch explodes, and you're like, I have never seen a guy who looks like who that. looks like him. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and now he's just kind of you know been casting all these. Yeah, I, no, I haven't seen yeah. Power of the Dog. I don't know the way they. they, they I think be. you're gonna like him. I think he's used. Like he's. I mean, that's the best performance he's I, ever given. Um, he's amazing. I love. And he's him. had. And he's had yeah. a good year. Like that's the thing, Cumberbatch. I mean, Cumberbatch had that. He had uh, he, the Empire of the Dog, obviously. He's got this other movie like out literally right now that I haven't seen about cats. Uh, <laughs> um, oh yeah, right. Louis uh, Wan, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he got uh, the um, the, the Courier earlier right, this right, year, right, which right. was a Sundance yeah. title from last year, but mm-hmm. came out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and the, um, the, the, the this was actually. Uh, in last year's Oscar race because of the, because of the way they extended it into this year. But um, the one about the Abu Ghraib prisoner, I'm blanking on the, uh, Oh yeah. Um, I'm blanking on the title. Um, yeah. And he was actually very good in all these. Um, and he's about to have Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course. Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, look, it, it, it's so funny because I, I have to give him so much credit though, because he is cranking out, Interesting movies, interesting parts. They're not always great, but he's actually doing the work while also being Doctor Strange, uh, which a lot of these other guys are not yeah, doing. That, that um, means a lot coming from Mark Ruffalo. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I, I, I was at the Gotham Awards with Mark. I wasn't with Mark Ruffalo, but at one point he got on. And I was like, oh, actually, our, our hair is like falling the exact same way. I wonder if somebody will. For those of you who are listening and not yeah. watching, Bill is a dead rigger He's for a Mark dead Ruffalo. For Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't believe he gave me the perfect opening. No. Um, I, I want to ask a, a question about. Um, about Kate Winslet in this film and sort of about Kate Winslet in terms of her career, I guess, because it does feel like an interesting moment in her career. I I would argue that I feel like post-Titanic, her career, for me anyway, didn't really take off until Eternal Sunshine. And I know that that's, you know, Mm -hmm. a few years later. But like, she's done, she does movies, obviously, between Titanic and and Eternal Sunshine. And there's, there's about five years in between those films, I believe five or six years. But it's just sort of, it feels like she's just not sure about what, how big a star she wants to be, perhaps. Um, And, and, and I think that there's something really interesting about her and Harvey Keitel working together in this film, because it does feel like Harvey Keitel is a guy who found a lane for himself, right? Like, He's he does the movies he wants to do. Um, and I just I, I don't know. I, I, I'm curious as to I, I thought she was very good in this movie. And by the way, I thought she was good before Titanic. I love her in Sense of Sensibility. I love her in Heavenly Creatures. I'm not saying she didn't do great work before Titanic. But what did you guys think of her performance in this? Oh, I think she's phenomenal. Um, I think she's phenomenal. I think she's very, you know, it's so funny because I I, I keep refusing to believe how young Kate Winslet was. You know, when she did Titanic, she was, what, 21, 22? Like, she was very young. I mean, she's playing, like, a 16-year-old or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something um, like that, yeah. Um, but, so so this period, like, she's actually a, very young and still trying to figure out exactly, you know, what she's doing. And And this is a little bit before Hollywood really begins to value, like, youth in you know and it's and it's leading ladies um but you know the the films that she does like they're not 
I mean, Quills is, you know, Quills is a prestige movie that, that, yeah. that ha- is in the awards race. It's not a, you know, it's, it's I mean, it ain't chopped liver. I, I think it's okay. I don't think it's a great movie, but, um, yeah. but she's in Enigma, uh, the year after oh, yeah, that, yeah, which yeah. actually is really good. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Apted's Enigma, mm-hmm. um, about this, you know, uh, about the, um, well, the Enigma, <laughs> about Bloodshed <laughs> Park and all that. Yeah. Um, which I actually really, I, I remember really enjoying that film. So, you know, they're, they're like, she's, she's doing real movies. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Life of David Gale is, is, is lousy, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, at the time, I'm sure it seemed like, you yeah, know, yeah. a no brainer, you know. It was a bad I moment guess. when we were making movies like The Life of David Gale. Yeah, but, yeah. uh, I, I, look. I hesitate to say this because it's it's such lame mm-hmm. analysis, but everything she did between Titanic and uh, Eternal Sunshine uh, just looks boring on a poster. And sure. um, I, I really don't know if a lot of them are boring, but I know a lot of them are period. A lot of them are British. A lot of them are with uh, directors like Michael Apted, who's a great director, but not mm-hmm. a, you know, a uh, not a Michelle Gondry, not a, sure. you know, iconoclast. And um, I think that there was something that kind of happened around Eternal Sunshine where she started working with different kinds of directors. They didn't Mm -hmm. all work, but different kinds of directors who were making different kinds of movies that I think expanded what the public expected from a Kate Winslet film, um, where before it felt very narrow, um, you know, a movie more or less outside of Titanic, which is you know, obviously a period piece as well, you know, movies set outside of America, a movie that's, you know, somewhat humorless, a movie that's somewhat uh, somewhat stayed and maybe a costume drama or something along those lines. Sure. But Eternal Sunshine, at least for me, felt like, oh, she could do anything. I, I agree. You know? Oh, I didn't realize that. The way I, thought I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that, it, I didn't realize that she went that far in that direction because then I love her in Steve Jobs. I think she's so good in that movie. And obviously I think she was incredible in Mare of Easttown. Like yeah. she can go in any direction. Um, and I, I don't think that, you know, I understood that until that film. I was going to extend the Mark Ruffalo bit and ask you what it was like to work with her in Eternal Sunshine, but. Oh, oh yes, you were in that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You were great too. Loved it. Lo- love you dancing. Love Michelle. Love great. <laughs> Just, just really adored working with Michelle. Um, I, I, did she? Oh yeah. Did he actually even cross with Kate Winslet in that movie? No, he's with the um the, the, the lab rats, Kirsten right? Dunn. He's with uh, Elijah Wood yeah. and Kirsten oh right, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Elijah um, Wood crossed with her. The um yes. the thing is though, I mean, Kate, but if you look at Kate Winslet's career, like yeah. she she has these like moments of just you know brilliance. And then she'll do a, a bunch of films that just seem to go nowhere or, yeah. you know, just seem like middling Oscar Beatty type movies. And, you know, I mean, these are who knows what goes into these things. Uh, you know, some of these projects, I'm sure, look great on right. paper. She does them or maybe she loved, maybe, you know, there might be movies she loved. I mean, look, uh, don't you? Yeah, I mean, people people ding the reader, um, but she won her Oscar for it. Pre- one presumes that she wanted it. to do that movie. I never saw um, the reader. Uh, I mean, like Revolutionary Road, I really like. It's a good, um, good movie. And, and a lot of people don't. And I actually, yeah. that's like the one, you know, it's like the, the one Sam Mendes movie I actually like. Um, don't you so, think that's you know. about the reunion, though? That was like people were like, Kate and Leo are back together and they're, and this is what and we got. Miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. That was, the, that's the best part about it. 
I know, I agree. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think people were also, I think a lot of people were turned off because, you know, I've never read the novel and apparently, you know, it only adapts one part of the novel. And I yeah. think people were a little like that was not the, the, the movie they had in their head of, sure. of that novel. Um, I, you know, I can't speak to that, but I just remember watching it and being really, uh, really kind of blown away and deeply moved by it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, and she's, I mean, like the, the, the period stuff she was doing before Titanic, like Jude is fantastic. Jude's a really good movie. Yeah. And Hamlet is actually like Branagh's masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. A great Ophelia, Sense and Sensibility, obviously is great. Um, you know, so it's not yeah, like she, Creatures is amazing. Yeah. And you, you know, yeah, like, I mean, yeah, she's, you know, I mean, she's just, yeah, I, I think she's always kind of been trying to do different things. And, and part of the problem with that is that sometimes they don't hit, you know? I would also think I also think it's worth saying too that like I, I do think that the post Titanic headspace must have been a real mind fuck, right? Like oh, yeah. I I you know, there's all that talk about how Leonardo DiCaprio wanted to do American Psycho and had to be literally talked out of doing it. By the way, mm-hmm. I don't think he would have been a particularly great Patrick Bateman, but that's kind of neither here nor there. Like they both were just like, I don't want to be put in a box and I don't mm-hmm. want to be a gigantic quote unquote movie star right now. I want to do weird shit. Yeah. And it took them some time, both of them, to kind of get their sea legs and figure out what it meant to be who they wanted to be after that. What yeah. was Leo? I mean I, Leo's first well I, so I what's that? No the, <laughs> the beach. beach. The, no uh, the yeah. beach of course is is to me as crazy as doing an American as American <laughs> Psycho. <laughs> it's a pretty but, but no but his first movie after Titanic is oh, celebrity. A Man in the Iron Mask. Well, well, Man in the Iron I, mean, Mask. I, I think he, I think he, he does made it before. He, yeah. he made it before yes. the movie came out. Yeah. But I remember Man in the Iron Mask, one yeah. of the worst films ever. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, terrible film. But like famously, like I, th- I believe it was yeah. maybe the movie that dethroned yes, Titanic was. at the box yes, office. Yes, they were one and two. One and yes. it was just like, yeah, I mean, uh, after Titanic, it'd be like yeah. $800 million. Like, yeah, <laughs> sure. No, I, think Leo, Man of the Iron Man. I, I think the, yeah. the Leo, you know, Leo... Leo went directly to the best in the game. Yeah. You know, like just directly yeah. to, to the best in the game over and over and over again. And uh, people who never worked with people in his generation, uh, Spielberg and Scorsese. And, uh, and uh, you know, basically said, I'm going to be your guy as long as you want me to be your guy. I don't know if there was a lane or, or an opportunity for Kate to do that. And, and, and that's exactly, I mean, that that's when we talk about like women in the film industry, that's something that's you really have to, because guys are able to, I mean, they're, if you're top of the top, if you're like, you know, if you've just got off, gotten off the, the biggest hit of all time and you're a 20-something male actor, Spielberg has a part for you. Scorsese, sure, sure, like yes, all these sure. guys, like Michael Mann has a part for you. All these people have parts for you. Um, and if you're a woman in that position... Yeah. Not like those guys don't necessarily have parts for you. They might. Um, and there might Not, be, you know, there might be some other filmmakers who have parts for you. But like, and, and Leo, I mean, Leo, I think Leo also has a really good, like, just a taste meter for being able sure. to pick good projects. He's but, yeah. but he also, like, he was able to just like latch on to Scorsese and just be like Scorsese's guy, um, over the course. And, and it was a symbiotic relationship, right? Because having Leo, allowed Scorsese to get these movies made because sure. he wasn't necessarily, you know, he wasn't necessarily yeah. box office gold himself. But like Leo attaching himself to Scorsese also, you know, 
um, burnished his credentials. And they, you know, they did great work. The, the, but the, the, but there wasn't somebody like that for Kate Winslet to, no. you know, to attach which, Which is to. why I think Jane Campion is so enticing, right? Like, yeah. that's why you're like, I'm going to jump in the Jane Campion movie for sure. Sorry, I buddy, agree I with you. No, no, I agree. But I'm thinking about, because it's, I'm thinking about the people who do kind of pluck these younger female stars and try to make them their person. And they tend to be like super creeps. Like mm-hmm. Woody did it with Scarlett Johansson. Sure. And David O. Russell did it with Jennifer Lawrence. Yep. So it, it this thing happens. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig is a super creep situation, but also that. Sure. And you know, who knows what that situation is? Um <laughs> but you you don't to, to your point, to the point we're making, you don't have the, you know, the top five make whatever you want filmmakers eat on the commercial side or on the critical side, or where those two things meet. Who are, who are doing that? They just that just isn't a thing, and that is a that is you know not necessarily a big problem, but that is a big hurdle for sure. Um, as we as we wrap this up, I just want to kind of talk about the end of the movie for for a quick second here. We have sort of this moment where uh, where PJ writes "Be kind" on Ruth's forehead, and it sort of sends her reeling a little bit, um, and they kind of get into this physical altercation where he punches her in the face and knocks her unconscious uh it's it's and then he puts her in the trunk and he pretends that she's run away and there's this whole sort of like it it gets real kind of nutty and um very sort of uh physical in a way that i don't necessarily know that i associate with jane campion like it gets a little bit like you're unsure. Like, it's not played for jokes, obviously. Like, he punches her in the face and, like, she's legitimately scared for her life. And there's all this sort of stuff going on. But there's also this kind of, like, wackiness to it that it's, it's, it's a bit of a tonal gamble, I guess is the best way to put it. What did you guys think about sort of how the film resolved itself? For, for me, by that point, the film yeah. is so kind of unhinged that I was like, all right, he <laughs> punched her in the face. I mean, not not to make light of it, but but like that, that, that yeah, the, yeah. the thing I was talking about of just like the the, the tonal shifts constantly, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm I, I tend to be someone who doesn't love tonal shifts in movies. I mean, not, I I love tonal shifts in movies when they're done the right way. Sure, but I don't love movies where the tone seems to be all over the place. Mm-hmm. But here's a case where it actually works for me because I, like like that's kind of the movie's thing is that the yeah. tone is constantly changing. Um, so like it made perfect sense that it got real dark there and then also like he stashes her in the trunk i was like wait does he think she's like dead like what like there's yeah. it's kind of yeah. a weird and then you know and then the confrontation with the family and then the family saves her yep. the, you yep. know her asshole family saves her like, <laughs> i mean but at this yeah. point you know this is full i mean like we like we talked about the messiness of like this is full-on like oh yeah no no when we say the messiness of life we mean it like yeah. you know um like everything is just out of control at this point and i think and i can imagine that you know, Jane Campion has, I mean, she, she's a filmmaker who who has plenty of like dashes of humor in her films, but she's not really a comedy filmmaker. And maybe, you know, it's possible that this was her attempt to kind of build up just sort of a a, 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 a zany head of steam so that everything sure. is kind of reaching a fever pitch and it's we're kind of climaxing with just, you know, all sorts of farcical nonsense happening. Um, and maybe she just, you know, maybe she just, wasn't quite like a deft enough with comedy to make that work in that way. So instead it just feels like this just 
this weird movie that just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. I just to be clear, great. it it worked for me. I didn't dislike it. I, I, I it just it was a little jarring. I yeah. guess I I didn't really love the the actual like him punching her in the face component. Um, well, but sorry, I think there's a reason yeah. that he that, that she did it. I mean, you know, look, I watched the piano in anticipation of this as well, mm-hmm. and the piano is, uh, you know, about a woman who I think is constantly uh, under, you know, living under the threat of physical violence until finally she gets her fucking finger chopped off, right? And I I think that, I I think that there's a thread there, which is no matter how smart you are or, or how sexually attractive you are, manipulative you are, if you're a woman and you're in a relationship with a man, there is this threat yeah. of physical violence, mm. both because men are bigger and men are dumber. Um, and yep. when he is being broken down to his base elements, mm-hmm. all he has left is his, you know, physical size. All yep. he has left is, you know, his 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 history of violence, so to speak. Yeah. And at that moment, to punch her, I think is exactly what that. What I think that's what. I think you're right. I think that's what, and I, I want to be delicate about this because I don't think this is true for all men, but I think that's what a typical man might do in that situation when he has been so emasculated yeah. over the course of several days. Well, also, if everything, um, if everything relating to his identity has basically been stripped of him, and you see this visually too, because you know, I'm at at this point. He's 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 wearing the dress, right? Um, yep. Yep. And he's got nothing on underneath. And 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 it's. I mean, we've seen Kaitel fully naked earlier in the movie, but you kind of. I mean, th- th- with the dress, you actually get a real sense of just how just stacked he is. Just how you know, like his physique. It, in some weird way, the dress actually. Well, I guess I guess that's what dresses are supposed to do. It accentuates his physique in a yeah. way that even like his a shot of him completely naked didn't. Yeah. Um, and. True. And like that's a kind of a visual correlative for the thing you're talking about, Kenny, which is like he's been reduced to this point. Yeah. At this point, he is that's all he is. Um but also like the fact is, you know, like when you when you do this to somebody, you are kind of playing with fire in a sense. And at this point, she's you know, this is kind of like I I agree that in some weird way it makes sense that this is what would happen. Although it is also played as like like a weird moment of slapsticks too. Too, it doesn't feel yeah. like it's 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 very menacing and threatening once it happens. But before it yeah. happens, it doesn't quite feel yeah. like you know. Just this, it, it felt to me like a male filmmaker would have handled that differently or would have excised it. And oh yeah, I I think I would have excised it because I want to believe that the guy would do that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I'm confident that a female filmmaker. You know, I think the proof is in the in the movie. Doesn't feel that way. I think that yep. there is this, and, and the, the the piano really. You watching the piano really hammered this home for me. This idea of you know this woman who literally doesn't have a voice and is completely she's literally the property of one of these men, yeah. um, and you know essentially enslaved. Uh, and I think that's you know I think that's a little what's the word a little simulacrum for uh what women deal with in general and i think that you know i think that that, that direct lines what we're, we're what we just watched in holy smoke which i don't I, get the title but regardless i i do want to this only <laughs> really- kinky was taken <laughs> 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 that's a better title <laughs> 
I do want to just highlight one quick thing that this all leads to a really interesting moment, which is uh, basically they're all saved by, as you mentioned, Boga, her asshole family, essentially. Mm. Um, and they put Harvey Keitel in the bed of the of the pickup truck. Um, and Kate Winslet crawls into the back of the truck with him and sort of cradles yeah. him and sort of has this moment. Um, the reason I wanted to, to, to highlight is because there is, I've seen this image in a couple of Jane's films where um, a man is lying in the lap of a woman. And, mm-hmm. and there's this sort of interesting, I don't want to say power dynamic, but the visual of, uh, of a man being sort of cradled or being held and sort of the woman sort of visually seeming more, I don't want to say, you know what I'm saying? Not powerful is the wrong no, word. But you know I'm getting I mean, at. That's, There's something that's, there. That's it's in bright is, star. Yes. I felt it in the piano. Like you do it's, feel it's in portrait of a lady. It's, it's, it's in portrait of a lady. Incredibly it's beautiful Julie. moment. Unfortunately. Yeah. So I think there's Julie. <laughs> you say Julie? <laughs> He's watching. Gobble, gobble. We're watching Razzie movies for another podcast. Oh, okay, but right. I but I do think that I think that that obviously feels like an image is very powerful to her, yeah. to to Jane, and and seeing yeah. that kind of dynamic. And I think, but yeah, I no, it it is very powerful, but it's also. Like I don't think of it as a power dynamic thing. I, I feel it as a as a moment of tenderness, and and very often in these films it feels like a real release. Yes, um, yes. And I think these, you know, and, and I think a lot of these. I mean, a lot of these male characters are are are, are so vulnerable. But like, I mean, the the, the you know the, the scene I'm thinking of in Portrait of a Lady just like wipes the floor with me every time I see it. Um, and so it doesn't feel like it's a questioning of power dynamics or anything like right. that. It really feels like it, like whenever it happens, it feels totally right yeah like it yeah. feels like oh, it, the yeah. whole movie has been kind of built and all of her films this whole it feels like the movie has just been building up to this moment and it's so tender and beautiful that it's like whenever that happens it's like almost the heart of the movie and something i think portrait of lady well, it, yeah i think it's interesting you say that because um i watched the pianos oscar wins the clips of them last mm. night um and Jane's speech, which is great, but she she highlights something really interesting where she thanks Sam Neill and Harvey Keitel for playing such complex and emotionally vulnerable men. Like I, I it's it's just really interesting to me how important that is to her. And okay. and and just, you know, to bring it full circle, it does feel like masculinity and that deconstruction of it and showing, you know, the spectrum that can exist in men and that they don't need to be very binary. I think it's just, right. it's, it's a wonderful trait of hers. Really yeah. looking forward to, to, to Power of the Dog. I'm going to watch it's it. It's so good. It's great. I mean, it, it's great. In some ways, it's it's like one of the most unforgiving movies she's ever made. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's so good. Are, are you going to be able to see it on a big screen or? or um, like, yeah, Maybe. 48 inch. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> It's. I, I, I did get a chance to see it with a Q and A with Kimberly Pierce and uh, and Jane Campion at uh-huh. a, a guild screening. Uh-huh. And 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 just to 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 quickly wrap this up, I did. I want to just talk about uh, Jane Campion. Talked a little bit about her process a little bit, mm. and just how being a director, people don't talk about it enough as being a failure all the time. And uh, she just talked about how ninety percent of the footage we shoot is thrown away, <laughs> like. Yeah. Think about that for a second. And it really just, I love that she goes into it that way, knowing that most of the stuff is going to be thrown away. I think that's kind of great. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think filmmakers, I, I would imagine, you know, I mean, you guys can speak to this even better, but, um, you know, like it's, it's all about, I mean, that's the thing. Is that, and I think a lot of artists, 
do this. And it's sometimes hard for people who, who think about becoming artists or trying to imagine the life of an artist. They don't realize it. Like when I, like the thing that always blows my mind is like how, ma- how much a photographer shoots. Yeah. Right. Oh, Cause you know, yeah. like I'll take a picture on Oh man, I, that, that sucks. I, I did a terrible <laughs> job with that picture. And then I realized what the fuck, like an actual photographer would take like 600 fucking shots before they got the right picture. Yeah. And like so it's much crazy. of it is just the patience and like the, just the, the mental fortitude to allow yourself to just make mistakes over and over and over and over and over totally. again until Nobody gets that. you get it right and then sometimes you don't even know you got it right until later and then you're yeah. like all right that's like that was the kubrick thing where he even he'd do 80 writing. takes and like take two would be oh what for sure do. i mean how many writing drafts is, do we do writing it's is like rewriting not even how many drafts i mean you know how many fucking scenes do i write that i throw away how many you know yeah. 180 page drafts do i write that need to be 60. It's all about killing your babies. It's it's brutal. Um, So at at the end of every episode, Bilga, we do a rating system, 0 to 99, 0 being Mm -hmm. the lowest, 99 being the highest, and we rate it before we do the podcast and after to see whether or not the conversation changed our opinions in one way or another. So I'll go first. So this is like like the Oxford debate uh, (laughs) thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... uh, I hadn't seen this film in 99, as I mentioned. I, I really liked this movie. Um, I, I, I think I'm at around a 70. Um, I think it's uh, maybe even a little higher. It might be at a 75 now after this conversation. Because I do feel like this film um, doesn't totally exist. Like, I'm not sure that a lot of people even know about this movie. Or, and more people should. And hopefully this podcast will help more people seek it out. Um, it. But, but, but I got to tell you, like... I mean, you're a critic, Bilga, but like 46% from critics, obviously it's 1989, it's a different time, It's there's any number of things, but how you could watch this movie and not think that it was worthy of being above at least 50% seems absolutely crazy to me, but yeah. I mean. Well, I mean, I, I, I have to, I can never take like Rotten Tomatoes scores. Is that a Rotten Tomatoes score? I can never yeah. take those scores seriously because, you know, somebody can write a mixed review that, that sure. acknowledges you know, like that there are great things about a movie, but that certain things don't work. And, and, you know, somebody at Rotten sure. Tomatoes has to say, Oh, is that, a, is that, a you know, like, I, yeah, I mean, take it all with a grain of salt, obviously. That's tough. Um, so I don't, I like, I can't go by that because every sure. time I've looked into that, unless it's a movie that just completely flopped, mm-hmm. every time I've looked into that and like actually read the reviews, I'm like, well, that's a perfectly interesting, <laughs> good review that, yeah. yeah. You know, like, yeah, maybe it's ultimately a con, but, you know, it's not really a con, you know? I mean, because that's the thing I try to do in my reviews. I I don't always succeed at this, but, like, even if it's a film I I didn't like, I try to give enough of a sense of the film so that someone can read the review. And even though I maybe wasn't, like, crazy about the film, that they can actually read my review and think, oh, that seems like something I should see. Because that used to happen to me. I mean, I grew up in D.C. where Rita Kempley was was the Washington Post film critic. And, you know, she was not a good critic or not, not sorry that's hey. that's not that's that's not fair okay she she was not a critic i agreed with okay fair but enough. she often gave enough of a sense in her reviews of the films that i that there's so many films i saw i read the review i was like well this seems like something i should see and then i'd see it, I'd be like well she was wrong it's great but at the same time i sure. gotta give credit to her for for, for leading me to the film so mm-hmm. um so put, putting putting the run tomato yeah. score aside um, where, where do you, where do you land on this film? Uh, what did you think of it when you saw it back in the day? And do you feel like your perspective and your number has changed or where, where would you lie on earth? Yeah. On I mean, I saw it, I didn't see it in 99. I saw it 
um, like a year or so later when it came out on, I think I would have, it would have been DVD, DVD the early yeah. years of DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, I like rented it from my local video store. Um, and it didn't make much of an impact on me. And I will say at this point, I, I, I'm not entirely sure if I'm talking about Holy Smoke or Hideous Kinky. Like, <laughs> like I think literally, I, I think I might have rented them both like the same week. Um, uh, so, uh, b- but, uh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't like a huge fan of it at the time. Um, yeah, I think for me, it'd be like a 70, mm-hmm. 75. Um, okay. I mean, it's one of those films. Look, a, a, a director like Jane Campion, you always like, a lesser effort from her is more interesting than, of course, look, that's yeah. more interesting than the best thing Sam Mendes ever did, <laughs> you know, um, which, which is actually Revolutionary Road star Kate Winslet. But, um, but you know, so, uh, so anyway, I love all this shade at Sam Mendes. Right? I'm sorry. I, I, no, was, no, no. I, I don't know why I've suddenly fixated on I, Sam Mendes. I, I like, can't I don't believe all, you came on the 99 podcast where all we do is talk about how much we love American beauty. <laughs> Right, right, right. That's why, because I think I was thinking because I had ninety nine on, yeah, on the brain. We do not, we do not um, like American. We do not. One yeah. of the one of the great yeah. crimes of of history. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, be, to beat the insider is just you know an, to, to beat the insider. Well, but, I mean, but but I mean that the that, insider that, was just just the best one nominated. Yeah, yeah. that whole Oscars lineup is just a, a it's an absolute fucking catastrophe. It <laughs> um, is. Uh, so, uh, Kenny, where are you? What's your rating? Uh, on this? I was 50. I was actually 58 before the podcast okay. uh, for all the reasons I kind of said right in the beginning. I'm sure. higher now. I mean, it, it leaves sure. a far better impression. I think the conversation has, uh, you know, illuminated some elements I didn't really think were front of, or weren't front of mind right after the mm-hmm. film, but are now. And I, uh, I'm going to go all, I'm going to go up to 68 because Sweet. I will not make a Great. stupid joke. Great. There you go. Um, 68. 68. Um, Bilga, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us about this. This was, I mean, we are, Kenny and I are, are huge fans of your work. Yes, we, we love, love your work. Thank you. Please, everyone should be following Bilga on Twitter. What is your handle, Bilga? Uh, Bilga Ibiri. At Bilga Ibiri. If you can there spell you it, you can. Can you find me? <laughs> yeah, for, if you can for, spell for, it, you can for, find for him. All the hottest um, Nets goss. Uh, and yeah. he's on, when, uh, is Kyrie, when is Kyrie finally going to take a shot? I think we're going to answer that. Yeah, I, I, I think Kyrie's probably going to wind up getting traded at some point. But <laughs> yeah. But uh, we're, you know, we're, we're huge fans and we're so thankful to be able to talk about Jim Camping with you. And we hope that you'll come back in the future. I would love to. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it's 1999.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.